Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Humidity Matters, where we aim to help you make a better measurement of humidity. And when we say better, we mean more accurate and more reliable, because when you do make a more accurate and reliable measurement, your process is more efficient and you usually get higher quality output. I'm Bruce McDuffie, your host, and I've been in the humidity measurement business for about 12 years, maybe 13 years now. And I've taught seminars and webinars around the globe, helping people just like you make a better measurement. My co-host is Steve Santoro with an incredible 35 years of humidity measurement expertise. Hey, Steve. Hey, Bruce. Great to be back. Looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. If We can keep everyone awake. <laughs> so in this episode, folks, which is number 17, We'll continue our discussion about calibration and maintenance of humidity measurement instruments. In the last episode, we discussed some important definitions just to lay the basic groundwork. We talked about calibration, adjustment, and specification. And as a reminder, just because an instrument has a specification does not guarantee that it meets that performance. And we also talked about accuracy, error, precision, and uncertainty. And uncertainty, of course, is the key definition because that is what quantifies the accuracy. So, Steve, in this episode, let's talk about the actual practice of calibrating humidity instruments or best practices, if you prefer. And the first step is to choose how you plan to execute your process. And there's three options. There's um, use creating and maintaining and building your own laboratory, your in-house lab and having everything calibrated there. Number two is you can send your measurement instruments into a lab, like for example, the Visala Calibration Lab in Boston, or you can do a field calibration. You do it right in place or sometimes even in the process. Well, I think each one of these has pros and cons. Not everyone is gonna be a, uh, a fit for any particular customer and it's worth uh, exploring the three options to see maybe what best fits your situation and uh, what would work best uh, in your particular case. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So number one, using your own lab, pretty self-explanatory what it is. You build a lab, you equip it, you take care of the standards, you do all the maintenance and storage, et cetera, and you hire the people and so on. So Steve, what are the advantages and disadvantages of setting up your own lab? Yeah, uh, so some of the advantages uh, first would be stable environment. So those reference standards that you're using are, are in one location, don't have to be moved, uh, can be set up to run uh, on a consistent basis. Uh, the equipment also is uh, it's known by the people operating it. It's the same equipment being used over and over. So you get to know the process and how to use it and how to perfect maybe the usage of it. So the process becomes uh, more streamlined because you're doing it yourself in-house over and over. And it's under your control. So you have the ability to change requirements or change uh, the way you would use this uh, as your own requirements change. And then some of the disadvantages are uh, it became very expensive to build up your own lab and to buy those reference standards. The equipment that you have to uh, operate is a, is a big investment and you have to not just buy it, but you also have a budget and plan to, to maintain that over time. 
and those uh, standards may change and you have to continue to invest in it. Uh, and there really needs to be enough volume to probably justify building up your own lab in-house. It can't be something you're doing occasionally. Generally, it won't be that cost effective. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the people, the expense of hiring people, probably specialists to do the calibrations and manage it. That's a big expense, too. Yeah, without question. Uh, the metrologist needs to be able to um, have the t- be able to do that on a on a full time basis. Probably not a part time job you want somebody doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Number two would be to send your measurement instruments out to a lab for calibration. For example, a lot of folks send their humidity instruments to our calibration lab in Boston. Steve, pros and cons of sending it out to a lab. Well. Uh, to take on, uh, we were just discussing briefly, is that uh, if you've got a a limited number of instruments, so you're not calibrating enough that you want to build up your own internal facility. So lower volumes be more cost effective to send it to a lab. You also uh, get the benefits and all the equipment and the standards in that lab without having to purchase them yourself. Uh, And then you're also getting the expertise of people who are doing this full-time um, all the time and know how to operate that equipment, work with that equipment. Those would be some of the, the advantages of sending them out. Uh, and if it's also the manufacturer, uh, they may have the ability to not just calibrate, but uh, know more about the instrument, how it should perform because they're uh, been worked, uh, they work with it more and are familiar with it. And some of the disadvantages, there's always some concern when you ship the product, there's going to be delivery time. So the calibration isn't just being done in your own facility, but it's the time it leaves your facility, gets calibrated in that lab, and then returned to you. There are some potential concerns with damage in transit. So once it leaves your facility and it's out of your hands, um, something could happen to it on the way to the manufacturer or to the lab and on its way back. Turnaround times maybe longer because, again, not out of your own control. And then you always have to uh, know what the requirements or what the capabilities of that lab are and are they credible and will they be doing uh, the proper calibration on your own equipment. You don't want to send it to a place that could make it worse, not better. If you ever do use an external lab, folks, make sure you audit them and make sure you look at their documentation for current calibration of their standards and traceability chain. And you get a sense pretty fast if the lab is uh, is credible or not. And if they don't want to share that information with you, it's probably a sign that they may not be up to the standards that you need. Yeah, if they won't share it with you, say, run, don't walk away from that lab. And then finally, number three, as I mentioned earlier, we have field calibration. And field calibration means you're calibrating your instruments at your site and sometimes even in the process. And field calibrations could be done by your own company employees, or you could hire a company to come in, a third-party company to come in and calibrate your instruments. Uh, Steve, pros and cons of field calibration? Well, we have uh, less downtime since we're not worrying about the transit Mm -hmm. time to and from. We also eliminate some of those risks of uh, shipping the product to and from, whether it could be lost or damaged uh, in either direction. Uh, And uh, 
there'll be even sometimes where calibrating it in place in the process uh, can even be advantageous to taking it and removing it from the process that it's operating in. And then uh, I think some of the disadvantages, things to be concerned about are the, the quality of, of the standard. Sometimes it may not be possible to bring the level of a standard that's in mm-hmm. a fixed laboratory under controlled conditions to, to be able to transport that out into the field, uh, as well as the competence of the people. Um, so it depends if you can really isolate that product uh, that you want to calibrate the, the instrument uh, so it could be as simple as things like if the person is standing too close to it and they're affecting the temperature or the humidity because they don't have the ability to isolate it from external environments like you might in a controlled laboratory. So you just want to take that into consideration uh, that when you're doing that work that um, if you, again, don't do it properly, you, you could make the instrument worse, not better than it was before you even uh, started this process. And humidity is kind of a unique calibration um, parameter. To, to, it's a unique parameter to calibrate against because it's not like temperature or weight or mass or whatever. Um, and it's harder to have somebody who's calibrating all these different parameters to be an expert in measuring calibrating humidity. So that can be a tricky one. As Steve mentioned, Steve, as you mentioned, um, somebody comes out takes the standard out, stands next to uh, the humidity sensor to calibrate it, that's got all kinds of problems. Your body's giving off water vapor and you're heating it up. And As we know from our previous episodes, humidity is very much a function of temperature. So if the, you know, that's right. Right, the temperature from the person, the humidity from the person, if they haven't isolated it uh, from the external environment, um, those conditions may be, uh, changing more than the instrument itself itself, uh, so it would make sense. You can edit that for me, but that uh, those conditions could be making the instrument uh, again worse than it was before you even started this calibration by doing it improperly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're if you are do have a third party come in and calibrate your instruments at your at your site, you should ask the person who comes in say, tell me about how temperature affects relative humidity. And everybody who listens to our podcast is going to know the rule of thumb, right, Steve? And if, again, if they maybe don't know the answer to that question, to quote you, Bruce, they should run, not walk away from uh, that provider. That's absolutely true. So once you choose your method or co- sometimes combination of methods, um, whether you're doing your own lab or your field calibration or maybe you send it into the Visala lab up at, in Boston or you hire the Weissler field calibration experts, um, there's some best practices that should be followed by whoever's doing the calibration. And one of the questions we get all the time, Steve, is how often should I calibrate my humidity instrument? Steve, what's, what's the answer to that question? We have two answers. We have the uh, a quick answer, and then we have the correct answer. So uh, which one would you like? Well, I think we need to hear them both. So let's hear them. Okay. Well, the quick answer might be something like calibrate it once a year. So that's kind of a default that people go with. And the problem is that uh, especially humidity sensors, they react differently to different processes, uh, depending on the conditions the instrument is subjected to. These are kind of some of the things that create the drift that will occur in, in, in all those sensors. So you could say, 
once a year could be a recommendation. However, the, the real answer, the long answer is it's really up to the customer to make that decision. A manufacturer can make a recommendation. A manufacturer could make an estimate of what they think the sensor will drift over the course of a period of time, for example, a year. But it's truly going to be up to the conditions and the process of yours versus somebody else's. So in, in this idea of the better answer is if you were to use the unit, for example, and after a year, you send it to the manufacturer or you send it to a lab to have that calibration done, uh, that recalibration would have as found data, the way the unit was received when it came in, but then they would compare it against the standard, adjust it, and then you would see how much drift occurred based on that as found as left data in your application. Now, based on that, your product under your conditions, and you look at the drift uh, that occurred, now it's up, you have the knowledge and the information to be able to make a decision to say, I can live with that tolerance, or maybe I want to keep a tighter tolerance. So instead of sending it in on an annual basis, I might move that down to nine months. Or if you look at it and, and say that it's it's barely drifted in my application, I can start to extend that calibration interval maybe from 12 months to 15 or 18 months. So it's truly up to you to decide within your own quality procedures how tight a tolerance can you live with and you make that calibration interval. So frequently on our certificates and our stickers, we will tell you when it was last calibrated, but we'll say it's really up to the customer to make the decision as to when that calibration is due. Just as we in our own lab choose when to send our standards out and we make those decisions so we can keep the tolerances that we want to have to produce the quality calibrations in our own lab. That's the longer answer. Yeah, well, that's a good. They're both good answers. I would add too, though, if somebody has a critical application, for example, drug storage or some kind of a really expensive product that depends on maintaining a certain, could be temperature or relative humidity, you want to be conservative because you don't want to get to a place where, well, I'm going to wait 12 months. Then after 12 months, you send in it for calibration and it's out of tolerance. Now, you have it's possible that gets you in a lot of trouble or it gets you in a position where you have to dump product. So if yeah. it is a critical um, be more conservative, would you say, Steve? Sure. You could even start with some spot checking along the way. I mean, mm -hmm. if you have some reference or portable device that maybe you can check to see how it's looking uh, before it's pulled for service, that could give an indication as to how stable it's been or uh, if it's starting to move. So if you have the ability to check that, um, that would also be a, a guide as you look to set those intervals that are going to be uh, best for your conditions uh, in the way you're using the product. Good suggestion. Absolutely. As most of our listeners know, um, I think they know, maybe not. If so, we'll educate around this too. You can calibrate humidity at one point, or you can calibrate humidity at multiple points, two, three, or even more points. How do you know what type of calibration service you need, Steve, if it's a one-point or a multi-point? Yeah. So speaking from our knowledge of applications and the history of our sensing technology in these uh, conditions, so the, uh, the answer will really depend on how you're using the sensor and the conditions that you're using it in. So if we think about a single-point calibration, we would recommend a single-point being um, 
calibration that will meet your needs if the humidity that you're operating in uh, stays within a pretty tight tolerance window of, of the uh, set point. So if we're going to think of a relative humidity that doesn't change by more than 20% over the entire time it's being used, so it's used in a pretty constant humidity, uh, then a single point is going to be fine. You could calibrate it at the conditions it's running at, uh, and because you're operating in such a narrow band of the instrument, one point would be enough. So an example would be uh, an art museum where they keep the relative humidity and the temperature consistent 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it doesn't change. So in those cases, setting and doing a one-point adjustment uh, is going to be fine. Uh, on the other case, if we're calibrating an instrument, for example, that may be used outdoors where the humidity can vary quite a bit from very wet to very dry, and the temperature could also vary from very warm to very cold. Now we need to be able to cover the full range of that instrument. So in a Weissler instrument, we want two points of humidity, and we want them to be 50% apart from each other so that uh, we're covering the full span. The sensor itself is so linear, we would do two adjustments uh, at a high and a low or a wet and a dry or an offset and a gain, or a zero and a spin. There's a lot of different terms that people <laughs> that's, use. That's another podcast, but we'll we'll include but that in the next one. Two points would give us the linearity to cover the full range, and then you could still go back and check uh, that at multiple points in between to get more confidence that it's really going to be covering over over that full range. Good. Yeah. So it, once again, it depends on your application. And the good news is, Steve, that if folks do have questions about these types of calibrations. We've got engineers on staff at Vaisala to help answer these questions and really help you zero in on what you need. As well as a calibration lab with people who do this all day long and are happy to help uh, with expertise, with advice, with suggestions, uh, really tailored to the way you are using your instrument and your conditions based on our knowledge of uh, doing thousands of calibrations a month. Yes. And a few other best practices to keep in mind, and this is one of my favorite ones, is equilibration. You have to give the calibration time, and you have to give it time mostly because you want that temperature to equilibrate. We've seen cases where somebody brings a, uh, a third party comes in, they're going to calibrate your humidity instruments, it's the middle of winter, and they take their standard out of the trunk of the car. And the steel on that probe with the standard is at 30 degrees and you take it inside where the temperature might be 72 degrees or so. If you don't let that equilibrate, you're going to have a very, very poor calibration. So, Steve, any comments on equilibration? How yeah, important uh, it is? Yeah, again, referencing some earlier episodes, the, the three things that affect humidity the most are temperature, temperature and followed by and temperature. temperature. So. Uh, you know, a, a good practice in our lab, if an instrument comes in, you know, through a shipment, through a carrier, uh, the package is opened. Even if it's early in the morning, that package is open, brought in the lab where it will sit and reach equilibrium with the standards it's going to be calibrated against from a temperature point of view. We won't touch the instrument the day it shows up. It's going to generally sit there overnight before we would touch it the next day. Um, you know, we know that even one degree centigrade between the device you're checking and the device you're checking it against could be a difference of three to six percent in relative humidity. So that's just the physics of this, a couple degrees off, and you really won't be able to do a proper calibration. So it is the type of thing where we 
need to let these things reach equilibrium or it's not worth doing the calibration. Yeah, then all of a sudden your your $2,000 humidity instrument is working at a $50 level. Exactly. Very important. Another one of, that I like is you want to make sure that you follow the manufacturer's instructions and procedures. RTFM. Remember what that means, Steve? I think that was read the fabulous manual. Is that uh, <laughs> what it's supposed yes. to mean? That's okay. it. Read the fabulous manual. Exactly. I thought that's what it was. I it's, c- it's, couldn't remember. It's fabulous, or the other one is, I think, fantastic. It was one of the. <laughs> okay, that's the F word we're talking about. That's the F word. Yep. So yeah, follow the instructions and procedures. Read the manual, and because that's highly valuable information in there for you. Yeah, I would say you know on our own we've taken a lot of time to uh, document, research write these uh, references in the manuals. Sometimes people don't read them until after there's a problem, but a lot of times you can avoid those by maybe reading them ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Or another thing, you can listen to our, all of our 17 podcasts and that'll get you up to speed too. Uh, Next one. If you do use a third party, whether it's coming into your facility to calibrate or use a third-party lab where you send out your instruments, you do an audit. Audit them uh, and make sure they're complying with what they're promising and that they can do a competent calibration. Yeah, it would be an important thing to take into account when you're going to pick the lab. If you really want to know the uncertainty of that lab, that's going to tell them or tell you how good of a calibration they can do and what traceability do they have and what standards are they referencing and what's is the scope of which they can do those calibrations. Uh, so in some cases, people will, uh, you may need to go audit a lab. In other cases, uh, if you look at a lab that's been accredited, so they've brought in mm-hmm. an independent third party organization that audits the lab for them and they have nothing to do with that particular company. But these independent auditing agencies allow you to use them as the auditor for you. So by going to a lab that has a 17025 accredited calibration, you know that they've been audited by that independent third party, and that could alleviate your time and expense of having to audit that lab yourself. And that's uh, an option that exists and makes a lot of sense and, and uh, can be more practical uh, for you uh, to make sure you're getting a calibration lab that meets your own quality standards. And we'll talk about accredited lab, accredited labs versus non-accredited labs in our next uh, our next oh, podcast. What a teaser, Bruce! <laughs> that was. I'll send you the check, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and what about um, this one? And we talked about the definition of calibration versus adjustment. So when you send your instrument into a lab for the service that's called calibration, it's always a good idea to ask the lab. Does your calibration service include adjustment? Because you may or may not want that adjustment, depending on your what your um, depending on what your QMS says. Sure, and the other thing too is it could even have an impact on the cost. Uh, some people might quote the calibration, the comparing it against a standard, um, and then could charge extra for an adjustment. But it's good to ask in advance and know what you're getting in advance. Um, and if the lab doesn't ask, then again, it might be a concern that uh, 
if they don't think to ask you if you want it adjusted or not, then uh, are they really up to the standards you want if they're not asking the right questions of you? And the last best practice we have is a spot check. And Steve talked about, uh, Steve, you talked about spot checks a little earlier. And it's always a good practice to check your measurement with, it doesn't have to be an actual standard. It could just be a, a calibrated device to see how it's trending in between those calibration intervals. Yeah, it uh, it can sometimes uh, give you advance warning or be able to trigger a concern before, as, as you've mentioned, it, it, we're too far down and too far along the path. And checking them in a lot of times will give you a little peace of mind that you're knowing that it's uh, pretty close, it's within tolerance, and I'm not seeing anything really out of range. Uh, so uh, if you have a good portable device that allows you to make those checks in between and gives you more confidence in, in your process that it hasn't maybe uh, drifted out for some unexplained reason and you find out about it just too late. Well, Steve, that concludes our second installment, second of three on our calibration series. Any closing thoughts? Not for these topics. I think we covered a lot on this one, but I'm looking forward to the uh, third segment so we can uh, wrap these uh, wrap up this topic together on uh, calibration. Thanks for listening, everyone. Up next in our three-part calibration series, we're going to discuss accredited versus non-accredited calibrations. Do you need an accredited calibration or do you need it just a standard calibration? We'll answer that question. And don't forget, folks, when it comes to product quality and process efficiency, humidity measurement does matter.